0: From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. And just a heads up that there's a bit of profanity in this episode.
1: And we also acknowledge the existence of recreational drugs and drug culture.
0: That's BLS producer Josh Crane, who's taking the reins today.
1: Yep. So, fair warning.
0: About the swearing and the drugs. Not about Josh.
1: Whatever you say.
2: I like to take LSD. About six times a year and go see fish, and that's my church.
3: Some people ask, like, what religion are you? And I kinda of jokingly say fish is my religion, but you know, is that a really a joke?
1: You may have heard of a band called Fish. That's P-H I S H.
3: Mama sing got got sing sing got
4: Mama sing, sing, got Mama sing got Mama sing sing got sing got Got you keep on drinking too.
1: Perhaps you or your friends went to the infamous Fish Festival in the northeast kingdom town of Coventry back in 2004.
4: It was literally the front page of the Burlington Free Press every day for about three weeks before that show.
1: At the very least, you've probably tasted their namesake ice cream flavor. I think I first
5: became conscious of Fish through Fish Food, The Ben and Jerry's ice cream.
1: The band has deep Vermont roots. They formed in the early to mid-80s, where they were college students at the University of Vermont and Goddard. There was keyboardist Paige McConnell, drummer John Fishman, bassist Mike Gordon, and guitarist Trey Anastasio. Four decades, and a few hiatuses later, Fish is still touring. And in spite of never having a chart-topping song or getting heavy radio play, they're one of the most successful bands of all time. And that is in part due to their improvisational jams and their rock and roll meets everything but the kitchen sink mashup of musical genres. And it's also due to the fact that they have one of the largest and most passionate fan bases in the world. Maybe you've heard some stereotypes about fish fans. That's fans, P-H-A-N-S, by the way, also known as fish heads.
4: It's the hemp necklace, the hacky sack playing, corduroy pants, patchouli smelling, like head shop visiting.
1: Even if you're a total fish newcomer, there's also, a good chance you've caught wind of some of the um, discourse surrounding the band.
6: There's like two kinds of fish opinions. There's I love fish, and I don't understand. I thought you were an intelligent person. Clearly,
1: there are the lovers.
2: Just being a fan, it's like, oh, you like fish. It's like, yep, I'm proud of it.
3: My ex husband was a fish fan. My Chicago boyfriend was a fish fan. My boyfriend right now is a fish fan.
1: And then there are the haters.
4: I would say from a purely musical perspective, there's nothing but hate there.
6: And then there's very few people in the middle.
1: But those people do exist. I met one of them, Ethan Weinstein, and he happens to be today's question asker.
5: I submitted a question uh, to Brave Little State, which I am a fan of, an avid listener, which was, I'm slightly embarrassed to say, why do people like fish and how did they become such a big part of Vermont music culture?
1: Ethan says he's slightly embarrassed because his questions are genuine. He knows of the band Fish, he just really does not understand why people like them. He feels left out.
5: If I could learn a little bit more about the band, then I might find that entry point into it because it is so pervasive in Vermont, and I've met so many people who have either gone and enjoyed many Fish shows or been dragged to Fish shows by loved ones who love Fish, and so I thought this was an opportunity to get my education.
1: Ethan, I am here to report that the mainstream discourse about fish fandom, about how you either love them or you hate them, it's just not true. There are tons of people out there who are just like you, stuck in the middle. I'm one of them too. I'm not a fish hater. I'm not a fish lover. I'm a fish... eh? But it is precisely because the polarization between fish lovers and fish haters dominates the mainstream conversation that so many of us in the middle never actually make a serious effort to give fish a chance. Now, if you are a fish head or a fish hater, welcome. I hope you stick around. But this story, this one is for everyone who's kind of on the fence about fish. Maybe you're ambivalent or maybe you're just intimidated by the whole scene. Whatever reason finds you in this uncomfortable middle space, I see you. I am here for you. I am you, and I am here to help you understand what Fish is all about. Part of that is what they actually sound like. You'll hear clips from their music throughout this piece. We've also mixed in some other podcasting music, like we do for all our stories, and which you're hearing right now. Check out our show notes for a track list if you want to know what's what. But for now, I welcome you to sit back and listen as we begin to unpack why some people are like this. What's your guess for how many fish shows you've been to?
2: Oh my god, hundreds. I have a huge bag of ticket stubs.
0: Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism project. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we want our work to be more inclusive, more transparent, and more fun. Today,
5: why do people like fish and how they become such a big part of Vermont music culture?
0: A perhaps fitting question for what happens to be our 100th episode. So, break out your favorite tie dye and pack your music festival essentials because we are taking a deep dive into the weird world of Vermont's favorite jam band.
6: If the Grateful Dead are trying to take you on a long, strange trip, Fish is more like DMT. They're trying to shoot you out of a fucking cannon.
7: We explore the culture of Fish fandom. We say the circus is coming to town when Fish is in town because it's a fucking circus and it is coming to town
0: and their early roots in our very own Brave Little State.
7: I guess
2: if Grace Potter's the queen, I would say that uh, fish are the classic court jesters.
0: (laughs) For episode 100, and the next 100 to come, we have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com.
1: I meet question-asker and fellow fish middle person Ethan Weinstein outside his home in South Woodstock. Yeah, let's do it. Ethan is the first to admit he has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to fish. You know... Considering his first exposure to the band was through chocolate ice cream and gooey marshmallow swirls.
5: Uh, I think I first became conscious of fish through fish food, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is to this day my favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor. I don't know if that makes me a poser because I haven't come to appreciate the band.
1: I mean, it's a classic flavor. Yeah, a classic. Ethan has actually made an effort to crack the code of fish fandom in the past. but he didn't find very much useful information.
5: And then if you, like, ask a person, where do I start? You know, one person is, like, 1989, and the other person's, like, 1997. Someone else is 2013. <laughs> and you're like, what other band is there where I have to span 30 years to find the meat on the bone? You
1: know? I mean, 30 years amazing. is actually an understatement. Fish's first show was way back in 1983. And the venue, by the way, was none other than the UVM cafeteria. So, Ethan, there's a bit more meat on the bone... you thought. But I'll be honest, when Ethan's question won our voting round, I didn't expect to hear from him at all. That's because he originally submitted his question anonymously, which is usually short for, I want to know the answer to this, but I want nothing to do with finding it. Much to my surprise, Ethan ultimately decided to emerge from hiding, to face the music, so to speak. When I asked why he had initially wanted to remain anonymous, He summed it up like this, so as not to incur the wrath of fish fans.
5: I knew that fish had a large and avid following, and that if I were to question the validity of that following, some people might come after me. You know, when you like something, you don't want people saying, why do you like it? Or I would just fear that that question might come across as um, an inherent judgment that there was uh, no reason to like the thing, which was not my intent. I think it could have been phrased more like, how did this band inspire such a, such a passionate following?
3: Hi, this is Nina replying to Josh Crane from Brave Little State regarding
1: why I love fish.
3: Hi, my name is Christina Alaback, and I live in Roseburg,
1: Oregon. Hi, Jim. I'm from Medwick, Massachusetts. I grew up in Virginia. Rob i you, calling from Nashville, Tennessee. We put Ethan's question to all of you. uh, The voices you're hearing are people who left messages on the Brave Little State hotline.
3: And I live in Morrisville, Vermont. I'm in Lantana, Florida.
4: Hey, uh, this is Andy calling from Heinsburg. I just saw this. While
1: reporting this story, I temporarily rebranded our hotline as a fish phone, a safe space for people to speak their true feelings about fish. And you will hear from this trove of fish-related voicemails throughout the episode. And the many callers really do help answer Ethan's question. Like Andy from Heinsberg, who helped me understand what it's really like to be a fishhead.
4: Honestly, amongst my friends, it's, we follow the band in the same way that other groups of people would follow like a sports team, where when they go out on tour, we keep up with the set lists and we talk about them and we'll stream the shows live together much in the way someone would watch our sports game together and compare, you know, the health of the band and what they're doing compared to a year ago, etc. So it's kind of this gamified fandom that's really fun.
1: And then there was Philip Ortego, who called in about the smaller, personal moments of fandom. I was listening to Fish tonight in the living room during dinner, and I listened to a song called Haley's Comet, and
4: one of the lyrics in the song is, I love meatballs, so you better get ready. I love meatballs, so you
1: which is a really silly lyric that doesn't really mean anything. But I've been listening to it since I
4: was 14. And I just thought it was really goofy how much that lyric and the build up to that. Part of the song just had me feeling on top of the world, feeling awesome. I feel super lucky that I like this band and that this band is doing what they're doing because of moments, like silly little moments like that. That's
1: my story. Thanks so much for this hotline. Okay. So far, I've learned that part of why people like Fish are these goofy lyrics that spread joy. Also, the idea of a gamified fandom, the sports team stuff. But then we got a call that started to shed light on something much more akin to professional fandom.
3: Hi, my name is Christina Alabak, and I live in Roseburg, Oregon, where I'm a theater professor. I'm calling because I love fish so much, I wrote my dissertation about the fish scene. And in 2019, a group of us fish studies scholars put together the first ever fish studies conference at Oregon State University.
1: A fish studies academic conference?
3: Nice to meet you, Josh.
1: Yeah, it's nice to meet you. I had to know more.
3: I know, well, if there's two things I love talking about, it's scholarship and fish.
1: And Christina, or Chris, has the credentials to back it up. The title of her master's thesis was Surrender to the Flow, Identity Performance of Fish Fans. Now she has a PhD, and in 2019, she joined a group of other fish scholars putting on the first ever fish conference at Oregon State University.
3: It was wonderful. (laughs) It was just, it was like, it was a dream come true, right? Like, you spend so much time on a scholarly project and lots of people are like, hmm, that's weird. And then suddenly you're in a group where it's like, all right, this isn't weird anymore, right? Like, this can be a legitimate thing to study.
1: The conference sessions had titles like Philosophical Approaches to Fish, or Community, Identity, and Utopia, or the health risks and benefits of fish. Chris says one of the best parts of the event was who actually showed up to these talks.
3: It wasn't just scholars that were there, like fish fans came, and people were really interested and people wanted to talk.
1: To be clear, there were fish fans who were scholars there, like Chris, and also fish fans who were not scholars, and also scholars who were very much not fish fans like the person who introduced Chris's session called Fish Fan Community and Culture.
0: Hi, uh, my name is Marta Kunecka. I teach philosophy here at Oregon State University. And I know absolutely nothing about fish. I am just now finding out something. So fish is still a very mysterious phenomena for me. And you are almost like a secret society to me. (laughs)
1: A secret society. She says it as a joke, but that exclusionary feeling is what a lot of people dislike about fish. Our question asker, Ethan, for example, has tried listening to their music.
5: I haven't found an easy entry point. Some of it is difficult listening. It's a consciously self referential and I think insider culture, which as an outsider makes it an intimidating thing to try to, you know, burrow your way into.
1: Some people on the outside of Fish fandom talk about how intimidating and insidery Fish fans can be, in addition to their music. And there is definitely a subset of Fish heads who act as obnoxious gatekeepers, judging anyone for not knowing Fish trivia, like the full set list from their show at the Palace Theater in 1993. There have also been more serious instances of fish fans ganging up on anyone who deigns to write something negative about fish and their fans. I was in touch with one such journalist while I was reporting this story, and understandably, they did not want to go on the record. But it is possible to develop an affinity for fish in spite of this subset of fans. That being said, fish's music is insidery and self referential on purpose. And it's harder to have an appreciation for the band without understanding at least some of those references. For instance, back in the 90s, Fish developed a secret language of musical signals that they used to communicate with fans during live shows. Naturally, it was meticulously cataloged by Fishheads, and one breakdown can be found on fish.net, which is a sort of fan generated Fish encyclopedia. Here are some examples of that secret language
3: all fall down. After a sequence of four descending notes, everyone falls, or at least crouches, to the floor as the music collapses in a downward spiral, until the drummer John Fishman's hi-hat
4: resumes the song. Simpsons. When a ten-note sequence from the opening of the Simpsons theme song is played, scream, doh!
3: Turn, turn, turn. After to everything, turn, turn, turn from the birds, classic is played softly, everyone turns to face the rear of the venue and cheers
7: as if that's where the band was.
1: Fish has phased this secret language out in recent years, but longtime Fish heads still like to reminisce about these musical Easter eggs. I asked Chris Allaback about the band's insideriness, and given her scholarship and her background in theater— Maybe it isn't surprising that this is one of the qualities she loves about fish.
3: The whole fish thing has a through line, like a play. They reference things that have happened in the past, they give you clues as to what's happening in the future.
1: So it turns out that fish music and the scene around it aren't just self referential and cryptic for the sake of it. These ideas were integral to the very formation of the band.
7: Uh, you know, their origins in Vermont are about pushing the envelope about being music nerds.
1: This is Leslie Mack, digital strategist, community organizer, and co-host of BlackBerry Jams, a podcast presented by none other than Ben & Jerry's about how jam band culture and Black liberation work intersect. And full disclosure here, VPR also has support from Ben & Jerry's as well as the Ben & Jerry's Foundation. Leslie's co-host on BlackBerry Jams is Lenny Duncan, an author, and ordained minister.
6: Sometimes people accuse me of being a theologian, but I'm not that white. And I am the co-host, co-creator, and weird fucking writer guy on uh, Blackberry Jams.
1: Lenny and Leslie live in Portland, Oregon, and Charlotte, North Carolina, respectively. So we all powered up our Zoom machines and chatted for a while from our three digital boxes. Lenny was smoking a joint, and the whole vibe was very relaxed. They're both longtime fish heads and friends, and listening to Blackberry Jams was instrumental in my own fish education.
6: I think the story of our podcast is that we're two people who are talking about white supremacy in the republic, and where we go for healing is this really white space and talking about why that
1: is strange. Lenny and Leslie compare attending fish shows with, quote, purchasing white privilege for a few hours.
7: I'll say that as a, you know, as a black woman, and especially as a black woman organizer, when we attempt to hold those same types of spaces in black community, we're met with violence, we're met with shutting it down, most likely with police involvement. And so for me, it's a place to kind of live out the dream of what community can be, um, even though it's an extremely white space.
6: I really dig the fact that uh, fish is one of the few places that, like, weirdos can go be weird. And there's few places in America that black folks can be
1: weird. The weirdness that fish shows make space for, and maybe even promote, gets back to the weirdness of the music itself. Lenny and Leslie schooled me on some pretty key fishery. Their first album was their dissertation. Right?
7: Yeah, thinking about what does this mean to apply a cerebral esoteric approach to music and coming together in that.
1: We don't have time to explore exactly what a cerebral esoteric approach to music actually is, but suffice to say that Fish is one example of it. Trey Anastasio's thesis at Goddard College became Fish's first album, The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday. And the album is definitely weird. It's this epic tale that takes place in a made-up land called Gamehenge, featuring made-up characters and sometimes made-up words. Why does any of this matter, you ask? Honestly, I had no idea at first. But then I realized that this wasn't a one-off thing. Fish and their fans continued expanding the world of Gamehenge in the decades since the original album first came out.
6: These are guys who love enchantras into double entendres into triple entendres.
1: The band has released new songs deepening the Gamehenge mythology, but it also goes beyond the music. Fishheads refer to attending fish shows as, quote, traveling to Gamehenge. There's also the Mockingbird Foundation. It's a nonprofit focused on music education that was started by fish fans in the 90s. And it's named after a character from Gamehenge. Whew. If you are a fish middle person like question asker Ethan is and like I am, your head is probably spinning right now. I don't blame you. You might be wondering whether you need to pick up on all these types of references to be a fish fan, and thankfully, you don't. However, would knowing them enrich your experience as a fish fan? I think it would. And I fully acknowledge that it can be overwhelming to google this kind of stuff. So let me give you at least a little head start and demystify three of the most common insider references from the land of fish. So hold on to your hacky sacks, here we go. Number one, Shakedown Street, which, if you're a fan of the Grateful Dead, you already know this one.
6: Shakedown Street is the main thoroughfare traditionally at a Grateful Dead show. And after the, the death of Jerry Garcia, many kids, you know, around that time, 95, 96, 97, started to call the main thoroughfare on Fish Lot Shakedown Street.
1: So basically, at dead shows and now fish shows, Shakedown Street is the area where concert goers sell food, gear, drugs and all the rest. These are not officially licensed vendors, but they're rarely policed and are afforded an almost special status. These fan-driven economies are a big part of what made Dead shows, and now Fish shows, unique. On to common insider reference number two. Halloween, and specifically, Fish's Halloween costume. So every
6: year, this is an insider thing, for Halloween, Fish wears a costume, right? And that costume is they come as another band and play their album. They've done the Velvet Underground, they've done the Talking Heads in the past, they've done others.
1: Some previous Halloween costumes have included big names like the Beatles, the Who, and the Rolling Stones, and more obscure ones like Little Feet and, the weirdest of all, a Disney album of Halloween sound effects.
6: That classic Disney album we all heard while trick-or-treating. And they create an entire album out. That ends up being like a big part of the repertoire. These songs are still played to this day, right? But they were just spoofing on sound effects on Halloween while
1: dressed like zombies. This brings us to the third key reference to understand from the Fish canon, the different eras.
3: Fish is kind of divided into 1.0, 2.0. 3.0, 3.0, and then there's like an argument whether or not we're in 4.0.
1: Of course, diehard fans debate the specifics, but the best I can tell is this. Fish 1.0 was by far the longest era, spanning from the band's formation in the 1980s all the way through the summer of 2000. Then they went on hiatus from fall 2000 until they came back at the very end of 2002. So Fish 2.0 lasted from the end of 2002 until the band broke up in 2004. And I want to pause here, because the band's breakup was a big deal. The four members, and frontman Trey Anastasio in particular, said there was too much pressure, and they were burnt out from decades of touring. Trey later revealed that he also needed the time to get clean. So Fish announced in May of 2004 that their two-day festival in Coventry, Vermont that summer was going to be their last show ever.
4: And it was literally—I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, it was about two or three weeks where every single day there was a picture of Fish and an article on the front page of the the Burlington Free Press.
1: This is Emmett Mosley. Not a Fish fan, but he did grow up in Derby Center, right next to Coventry. And for a town of just a few hundred people, a gigantic festival that was also supposed to be Fish's last show ever was kind of a big deal.
4: You couldn't avoid that this was happening. And I could see from, like, not too far from my house, like, the field where they were setting this whole thing up.
1: VPR made a documentary about this show back in 2004, and the elements, torrential downpours which led to gross, ankle-high mud, basically matched the vibe of the festival-goers, including a woman named Jill, who was featured in the documentary.
0: There was just this... Undertone of like melancholy that you can feel it like everywhere you are here. It's different than how the other festivals have gone. I think it's because people are really, really sad. I try not to think about it. Like I could cry thinking about it. And I think a lot of people are going to be extremely emotional. I think the band. Of
1: course, that wasn't the end of Fish. Trey got sober, and about four years later, in 2008, they broke the news, much to the delight of Fish heads everywhere. You know, I was on all the newsletters and everything, and I woke up one morning and had an email announcing that fish was getting back together. This is Alex McMillan, my one friend who is a fishhead, at least openly. He was in high school at the time. And my reaction was to sob. I just bawled my eyes out for about half an hour, and I was at a boarding school at the time. I was just running around the dorm crying, and people thought that, you know, my parents had died or, you know, uh, someone had been hurt or some horrible crisis had happened. Nothing to see here, just Fish reuniting. And thus began the Fish 3.0 era, which lasted until the pandemic started in 2020. And finally, Fish 4.0 began with their first show post-COVID lockdown in 2021 and continues to this day. Fish Heads label themselves as a 1.0-er, 2.0-er, 3.0-er, etc., depending on when they became a fan. Also, fans use the era markers to describe different points in Fish's musical evolution as a band. But perhaps the 4.0 era isn't as much about the band evolving as it is about fans evolving. Fish is likely rich and famous enough for the pandemic to have had little bearing on their livelihoods. Fish Heads, meanwhile have been left to figure out what it means to be a fan in an era when it's hard to do the very thing that made Fish fandom so special in the first place. Gather together, in person, in large groups, to experience that live show magic. That's how I
4: first got into them. I spent years ridiculing them and then finally got dragged to a concert by one of my best friends who's seen them 60 times or something. And uh,
2: immediately really appreciated their ability to um, play and improvise together.
1: The improvisation is part of what sets Fish Live shows apart. The combination of the band's musical wizardry and onstage chemistry manifests in the form of long, drawn-out jams in the middle of concerts.
3: I feel like there is this hope in this band working together to improvise. It's not like we sit in the audience and then we watch a show. There is an energy that we give to them, and there's an energy that they give to us. It's the only band I've gone to that I feel like
7: they know me.
3: (laughs) That seems so kind of ridiculous now that I hear it coming out of my mouth.
7: I spent a lot of money to go see the Red Hot Chili Peppers next year, and I'm going to have a great time. But I also know what that set list is going to be, and I know it's going to be exactly what the radio edit is. And I know that I'm going to be able to sing along to every ad lib because that's what they're going to play. And Fish is the antithesis of that. It's about improvisation. It's about spontaneity. It's about a shared experience that only happens in that moment at that time. And that's the beauty of the music itself.
1: One of the notable things about Fish, though, is that their music isn't always beautiful. Not in a subjective way. I mean, like they often mess up on stage. Hey, this is Rowan Kamen. I grew up in Virginia. I'm calling about the upcoming Fish episode. I love Fish because you just never know what you're going to get at a fish show. They haven't repeated a set list in almost 2,000 career shows, and even each version of the same songs will be slightly different than the rest. Walking into the show, you could be in for the best fish show you've ever seen or not, and you never know until they start playing.
3: I love artists that take artistic risks, right? Because the payoff is so great, but there's a chance you will massively fail. They have failed.
1: This idea of a band you paid good money to go see failing and putting on a bad show, and not just having that be okay, but even welcomed, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. But fans embrace it. It's all about the energy, the rule-breaking, and the relationship between Fish and their live audiences.
6: If the Grateful Dead are trying to take you on a long, strange trip, Fish is more like DMT. They're trying to shoot you out of a fucking cannon, right? And so the, it's a constant master's class in what you should and should not do with music and why none of that, none of those rules make any sense. And that's why I like Fish.
1: When we come back,
2: I mean, John Fishman was everywhere, and he became friends with everybody. Everyone knew John.
1: A return to the beginning of the Fish 1.0 era. How the band's origins in Vermont reveal the secret sauce to their success. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Today, we're trying to get to the bottom of the jam band Fish. And at this point, we focused on why people like them. The gamified fandom, the professional fandom, the insider culture and nerdy music references, the improvisation. Which brings us to the second part of Ethan Weinstein's question. How did Fish become such a big part of Vermont's music culture? The answer has a lot to do with one downtown Burlington bar. Nectar's. The voice on the other end of this very scratchy phone line is Nectar Roris. He's in his 80s now, and when I called to request an interview, he didn't exactly jump at the opportunity to reminisce.
2: I don't know, Josh. Those are old days now. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's uh, It's been so long, and uh, in my age, it's hard to remember all those things.
1: But I asked him to try, because Nectar Roris is a pretty big deal. He's originally from Greece, but has been a major part of the Burlington community since the 70s. The city even observes Nectar Roris Day every September 14th, and it's his namesake bar, Nectar's, that has become perhaps the defining venue in Vermont's music scene, playing a major role in launching the careers of local artists, including Grace Potter and the Nocturnals, and, yes, Fish. We
2: all, we had a phenomenal friendship with all of them.
1: One reason Nectar's had such an impact on fish was because Nectar Roris decided not to charge a cover for live music. Nectar's was a place to be because uh, not having a cover charge, and people will come in for that. People who worked at Nectar's in the fish days told me that Nectar Roris' approach to live music boiled down to this free and often. It was open seven days a week, and nearly every month, Nectar booked a little known band called Fish to play three nights in a row for three to four sets per night. Here they are during one of those sets in 1988. These shows gave Fish a golden opportunity to form a real connection with people. And those people could always count on when the band would be playing.
2: I think the fish, uh, home with nectars, where they make a lot of money or not, they have fun. All their friends will come and see them. Uh, I went, started UVM in 1988, the fall of 1988.
1: This is Stacy Steinmetz.
2: And it, the very, very, very first weekend I was at UVM, we doubled down on bikes and went to go see this band called Fish. And from the very beginning, it was like, oh, my God, these guys are great. (laughs) And by the time I came around, I saw the last shows at Nectars. So they were kind of graduating out of Nectars and slowly started playing some other campuses at other colleges, which we would go to all of them. It was so much fun.
1: After a few years, fish gained a large enough following that they outgrew Nectars.
2: You know, when become big, I them. I mean, there was no way fire me have them.
1: But the legend of Nectars lives on in fish lore. In 1992, the band released their third studio album, which they dedicated to none other than Rorus. It was called A Picture of Nectar. So, Nectars is one answer to how Fish became such a big part of Vermont music culture. Another might be their legendary recording studio, The Barn, which is located not too far from Burlington. Stacy Steinmetz points to a different reason, though. She remembers there being something special about the way the band fit into the Burlington social scene in the 80s. Especially the drummer, John Fishman.
2: I mean, John Fishman was everywhere, and he became friends with everybody. Everyone knew John.
1: Everyone I spoke to who knew the members of Fish back in those days said the same thing. They were friends with each other before they were bandmates, and they were really down to earth. Stacey has one memory that she says really encapsulates how Fish built such a loyal following.
2: We went to some college, and they weren't letting anyone from anywhere else except their students go see the show, and John must have asked well, can I have a guest list? And they're like, sure. And he said something like, do you care how many people I have on it? And they're like, no. So John went out and Jess was sitting there. Anyone who went up to him, he put their name on a guest list. And when we one by one went up to the door, like the people had sheets backwards and forwards and sideways just filled with names. And But like that was such the essence of this community, of this synergistic thing. It was an intentional building of a community.
1: I also think part of Fish's standing in Vermont culture has to do with what happened once they outgrew the state, or at least the little bars in Burlington. In the 1990s, Fish's star was rising, quickly. But it wasn't because they had a hit single or endless radio play. Instead, Fish took the same principles of grassroots community building they had experimented with in Vermont and applied it on a much larger scale. Instead of three nights in a row at Nectar's, they hosted multi-day fish festivals, featuring multiple sets every day and night, and even included some unplanned sets that delighted fans who happened to stumble upon them. Fish festivals were regularly attended by as many as 80,000 people. And that 80,000 number is even more impressive when you consider where these festivals were held. Plattsburgh, New York, Limestone, Maine, people traveled far and wide to attend. And for those fans, it was worth the trip. Because Fish didn't just build a stage and sell as many tickets as possible, they put real effort into making the festival's unique standalone experiences.
2: And you walked in without knowing anything or what to expect. They were brilliant in just creating all these pieces that were light and fun and connected and kept you wondering what's next.
1: While they were planning Clifford Ball, the first of these festivals, they consulted an 1100-page book about designing communities called a pattern language. The result? They built a whole temporary town complete with a post office, art installations, carnival rides, movie screenings, and secluded campsites. These types of things might sound familiar to music festival goers these days, but these ideas came directly from fish festivals in the 90s.
7: They probably have a long list of shit that they've been like, what if we did this and what if we did that? Um, It's really exciting for bands to do that. I think the music industry... Is so focused on a cookie cutter approach to making music, putting out music, and interacting with fandom. And Fish has said throughout its entire history fuck all of that. We're gonna do something totally different.
1: The most epic of all Fish festivals was Big Cypress, hosted on the Big Cypress Indian Reservation in Florida. It lasted from December 30, 1999, to January 1st, 2000. It was literally the largest gathering on planet Earth to ring in the new millennium. And not only that, but Fish played a a seven-and-a-half-hour set from midnight on New Year's Eve to sunrise on New Year's Day. Leslie Mack of Blackberry Jams was
7: there. Big Cypress was amazing. But one of the things about that is that 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 kernel of an idea had been, you know, festering in the group for Decades prior to the millennium. And they had been doing these like weird during college, these 10 hour jam sessions just to see how long they could play. And so Big Cypress and in, in a way when they did this midnight to sunrise set was the fruition of a long conversation the band had been having amongst themselves. <laughs>
1: The success of Fish's festivals in the 90s and early 2000s directly led to the boom of the music festival industry that happened soon thereafter. Bonnaroo, for instance, the founders literally consulted with Fish's festival team. But there was more to the rise of Fish than music festivals. Remember the impromptu guest list that John Fishman put together at a college show in Vermont? Well, Fish continued breaking the so-called rules of music fandom. They encouraged fans to record their live shows at a time when most bands were discouraging their fans from doing the same thing. This led to a whole fan economy of swapping tapes and later torrenting music files to compare a version of a song played at this show to a version of a song played at that show, and so on. And this is why, even without the marketing muscle of a traditional record label or tons of radio play, Fish's popularity exploded anyways. It was all grassroots— the fans were the marketing team.
7: Where they are now is where they always dreamed they would be, with a huge fan base that's very devoted to them, that's not dependent on radio singles or album sales or any of the things that the music industry says you're supposed to want to, uh, in order to be a successful musician, be beholden to.
1: These days, there's an app that lets fans stream concerts from their couches, which is known as going on Couch Tour. And internet forums, where fans catalog set lists and debate fish minutia. There are niche communities for fish heads who like coffee and crafting and scuba diving, to name a few. Fish Chicks is for women fish heads. Fish Hens is for women fish heads over the age of 50. Brian and Robert is a group of queer fish fans. Free PHRE is fans for racial equity. The Fellowship with a PH is a group for sober fans. And yes, there's a group where single fish fans meet other single fish fans. So. The technology has evolved, but the idea of a grassroots fandom has remained. And for the diehards, Fish may be their favorite band, but it's also their identity, their lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that resonates with many of us here in Vermont. Because sure, our brave little state birthed one of the most successful bands of all time. But more than that, that band rejected the corporate music industry to blaze their own trail with the support of their fan community. I mean, is there anything more Vermont than that? In fact, Fish has become so synonymous with our state that I spoke to one Vermonter who literally struggles with his identity because he is not a Fish fan.
4: Yeah, I think it's because I still identify really strongly as a Vermonter.
1: This is Emmett Mosley again, the guy from Derby.
4: And I think realizing that after I left, like that Fish was such like a connected so strongly to what people perceived Vermont to be like, it kind of galled me that, you know, I'm like, well, that's not me.
1: Emmett, we support you. You can definitely be a Vermonter without liking Fish. Just don't expect their high standing in Vermont music culture to change anytime soon.
2: And I guess if Grace Potter's the queen, I would say that uh, Fish are the classic court jesters. <laughs>
1: I've spoken to way more people about fish in the last few months than I ever have. And probably ever will. But I have to say, while all I set out to do was answer Ethan's question, I've definitely developed a real appreciation for what fish provides for so many people. Because going into this, my best guess as to why people like fish? The drugs. And, yeah, there's a bunch of drugs. Bought, sold, gifted, used, and abused at fish shows. That may be why some people like fish. but. It's far from everyone. Hi, my name is
6: Jim. I'm from Natick, Massachusetts. I do wish more people understood what a force of beauty and good this band is because the public perception is so far off from reality. There's this idea that Fish just gets up and plays noise for four hours and you have to be on acid or so stoned you can't tell how bad the music is. I've never been on acid or really much of anything at a Fish show, and yet I can't think of too many things that bring me more happiness. There is so much positivity about this band from the charity work they do to the amazing musicianship to the sheer silliness to the fan communities and the fact that they are probably one of the least cynical, most joyful things in existence.
1: If people go to fish shows and all they notice are the drugs, they're missing the larger point. Freedom. Leslie Mack of Blackberry Jams says she wasn't open about her fish fandom until recently. She had her community organizing work on one side and her fish-headedness on the other, and never the twain did meet. That is, until she started co-hosting the podcast Blackberry Jams, and for the first time shared her love for the band with her organizing colleagues. And then, something unexpected happened.
7: And the response that I've received, especially from um, Black women organizers and Black femme organizers, is, when are we going? because they've recognized in me talking about my experiences um, a lack of those kind of spaces for themselves where they can just be. It's one of those things that keeps me going when I'm down.
1: This is Fish scholar Chris Alabek again.
3: Some people ask, like, what religion are you? And I kind of jokingly say, Fish is my religion. But, you know, is that a really a joke? People go to church on Sundays and they're trying to find hope. They're trying to find something that's bigger than them. And for me, that's what a fish show is.
1: For Chris, fish shows are a form of hope. For Lenny from Blackberry Jams, they're a form of revolution.
6: And revolution takes more than legislation. It takes more than organizing. It takes more than just self-care. It takes an artistic, theological, or spiritual, and a quasi-almost ethical Kind of thinking and and society, uh, not to get too deep, but it's just based off of James Baldwin's premise of the struggle of the artist. And the struggle of the artist is the struggle of everyone. We get to be human sometimes. But to get there, it takes a lot and it takes a lot of us working together. And so sometimes when I look at Fish Lot or other of these kind of gatherings, I think I see the ingredients for us to get together and get to experience what it means to be human. And that is revolution.
1: At the end of our interview, I asked Lenny if there were any Fish songs that felt particularly meaningful to him. He cited a song Fish released in April of 2020, right in the middle of the first wave of COVID. It's called Leaves.
6: And uh, the lyrics go, and, and I sometimes I cry when I read them, so sorry. It's just that after George Floyd and um, the year, the, the last almost two years we've had now, the song. Well, anyway, I'll just read the lyrics. Someone's always telling me to breathe.
3: Someone's always telling me to breathe
6: The wind is always whispering through the leaves
4: The wind is always whispering through the leaves
6: It sings to the world, they cling to the world, I listen and believe
4: It
3: sings to the world, they cling to the world, I listen and believe
6: The music stops and echoes linger on
4: The music stops
6: And the secret of the kingdom was conferred. I'm waiting till you sing me one more song. The messenger revealed the rulers. You promised the moon, but I need a tune and notes are rarely wrong. And then the chorus goes, we built a kingdom out of lies. And then we blindly fanned the fire.
4: rising volume muffled moans in
6: undertones we built a kingdom of lies we warmed our hands with glowing coals and now they rain down from the skies rising volume muffled moans thoughts conveyed in undertones we built a kingdom out of lies and in that moment, April 1st, 2020, there were no more prescient words for me. And then May 25th, 2020, um, it became sort of an anthem. This idea that there is another American story, and it can only be told when we gather and listen to music, that'll never be defeated, and it'll never die. That, that, that's eternal. That's one of the things that truly is eternal.
1: Ethan and all of you other middle people out there. I hope by now you have a better sense of why people like Fish and the band's connection to Vermont music culture. For those of you who may want to take the next step into fandom, well, go check out a live show. Is it possible to be a, a Fish fan without going to a live show? Mm, I don't know. I don't th- I don't I- think I'm gonna so. I'm going to go hard no. I'm going to no. go hard no. Yeah, yeah I don't think <laughs> hard so. Hard no. But also, hey, No pressure.
7: I would just say to Ethan, you don't have to love fish just because you're from Vermont. And being from Vermont, you're very well positioned to love fish.
0: Josh Crean. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Ethan Weinstein for the great question. To see photos of fish from their Burlington days, check out our website, bravelittlestate.org. We've also got a whole fish starter kit with links to other great resources to further your fish education. While you're at our site, you can also submit your own question for the show, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. Josh Crane reported and produced this episode, with editing and digital production from Myra Flynn and me, mix and sound design by Josh Crane. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions, and, of course, Fish. Thanks to Fish, Inc. for permission to use some of the band's music. Special thanks also to Jonathan Heller, Billy Glasner, Paul Brill, Stephanie Jenkins, Jay Curley, Anne Rothwell, Jen Moore... Beth Montori Rolls, Anna Van Dyne, Mary Angish, Peter Angish, Laura Schoenfeld, Steve Zind, Patty Daniels, Chris Albertine, John Van Hoosen, Mitch Wortlieb, Alex Burns, and everyone who left a voicemail on our FISH hotline. That's Chris, Chris, Christina, Jonathan, Jim, Antonia, Ron, Philip, Andy, Stephanie, Molly, Rob, Shannon, Bryant, and Nina. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. If you liked what you heard today, please let us know at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.